Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's podcast, the Weekly Market Insights Call. And I'm delighted to be joined by Johanna. Johanna, welcome. Thank you very much for being with us this week. Hi, Charles. So, as always, we try and time our conversations with you in the wake of the latest set of GAC meetings. And I know also we've just recently had the Global Macro Roundtable. So we're going to get into all of that and other dramas. Just to briefly recap, as usual, in terms of things that have been in the headlines recently, uh, we had some slightly better data out of the US in terms of consumer credit, which gave people optimism uh, about further elongation of the level of the cycle. Uh, of course, in the Eurozone, the big headline uh, was the ECB's decision to cut its deposit interest rate, wait for it, from minus 0.4% now to minus 0.5%. Uh, and also, perhaps even more importantly, uh, to restart its quantitative easing program. This was Mario Draghi's farewell. He'd hoped to end it by the time he was leaving, but of course that hasn't proven possible. Uh, so QE stays in place and indeed will be to the tune of 20 billion euros of purchases per month. Um, and Draghi also called for action from governments to step up fiscal policy. And we'll, we'll come back to that, I think, as well. And then in the UK, uh, I'm afraid the Brexit drama persists. Uh, clearly, um, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, has succeeded in prorogating Parliament, uh, but that's now subject to judicial review. Um, but it does appear, at least, as if Parliament has now successfully uh, reduced the risk of a no Brexit, sorry, a no deal Brexit by the Halloween deadline. Um, and on the back of that, we have seen a slight rally in sterling too. Last time I checked, about 124. So, in a sense, the same dramas, Johanna, um, that we've been talking about now for weeks and weeks and weeks persist. It's a backdrop of uncertainty and, my word, uh, fragility. But perhaps we can begin with asking you. What were the core kind of conclusions from the latest GAC meetings? Well, actually, I mean, picking up on the word you use, fragility, I think that um, the fragility is coming from the fact that the underlying tone of growth is still weak. Um, and so as that, that pace of growth gradually decelerates, which continues to be Keith's forecast as well as we move into 2020, we're vulnerable to sort of any gust of wind blowing off us off course. And I think that's a challenge. If growth was a little bit stronger, we could all be a little bit more relaxed. And so, you know, while that continues to be the case, and there's evidence that, for example, export orders are still weak, because ultimately the weakness is coming from the manufacturing side of the economy, that while that happens, it's very difficult to take a lot of cyclical risk in the portfolio. And so all year, we have, we have favoured bonds. That continues to be the case, increasingly uncomfortable, given the rally in yields. I mean, yields. you've had a huge move. Yeah, so the only bit we've taken profits on now is uh, European yields, because that was really the area that got most extreme. So we're out of German government debt and out of European high-yield debt. We're reducing that as well. But essentially still exposed to bonds um, and, and US high-yield debt, for example. Um, and we, we do have investments in equities, but, you know, we can't really invest extensively in emerging markets, for example, while we have this sort of cloud overgrowth. So essentially... We are long liquidity, but still trying to avoid too much cyclical risk. And that continues to be the case. So let's let's maybe dig into some of those sort of um, uncertainties at this point and begin with a headline I didn't actually uh, mention in my introduction, which of course is oil. So with that fragility, that level of uncertainty and delicate balance that you're alluding to, uh, what is the 
risk associated with this sudden spike in the oil price following the attacks that we've seen, the drone attacks in Saudi Arabia? Well, clearly, I mean, there's some sort of direct effects of a higher oil price. And ultimately, I tend to see oil as a, as a growth tax rather than an inflation problem. Um, but I think more broadly, really, it speaks to the potential for more geopolitical tension in the Middle East. And again, one of the things that sort of haunted the market this year has been the potential for a number of political events to flare up, be it the trade issue, uh, be it Brexit, situation in Hong Kong, and now the situation uh, with Iran. Um, so again, it's the kind of thing that doesn't help in an environment where growth is already a little bit weak. Right. In the sense that there's an apple cart, it's yet another yes. risk to upsetting that apple cart. Yes. So f from the point of view of you, you talk about liquidity. So unusually, perhaps at this stage of the cycle, uh, one traditionally would be worrying about interest rates and a constraint on liquidity. And instead, it's more just about activity because of this uncertainty. How does the team think about that lens at this stage of the cycle? Well, I think one of the challenges we face is that this idea of being long liquidity and avoiding cyclical risk is very consensus now. We've done very well out of it, uh, but clearly that's now reflected in the price. So I think what we need to think about now is, is there potential for any kind of surprise on growth? So our, our central scenario is we continue to get anemic growth with the potential for gusts of wind. Right. Uh, and, that, and that's why, again, we're avoiding cyclical risk. But we need to be alert to the fact that that is reflected in market valuation. So clearly, we've seen a, a bounce in value over the last couple of weeks, a backup in bond yields. Our tendency is still to fade any cyclical surprise. But we are spending quite a lot of time trying to think about where and could sorry, the cyclical... just to elaborate for our listeners, by fade cyclical surprise in practice, sorry, what's Well, for mean? example, bond yields sold off and we bought a bit. Right. Gold sold off, we bought a bit. <laughs> so that's right. what I mean by that. Right. As um, in rather than believing that it was a turn. Yes. Yes. Where could we be wrong? There's obviously talk of fiscal policy now. I think in practice that would take quite a long time to come through. But for example, back in 2011, we had a situation where Sarkozy and Merkel, when we're in the depths of the sovereign debt crisis, just alluded to the fact that they would do something about it. And that was enough to make the market turn. So even just the talk of fiscal policy might help. But I think ultimately it will take a bit of time to come through. Obviously, trade is the wild card. What Trump, what Trump will tweet next, but I think us trying to predict his next tweet is is not a good good use of time. Apparently, Keith heard the other day that um, from Lionel Barber uh, that there is someone who is paid to write Trump's tweets, which augurs in a whole lot <laughs> yeah, of questions exactly. about the governance process. Yeah. Can we just hone in for a second? We'll come back to trade, but on fiscal stimulus, which of course there's lots of speculation in the newspapers, where do you think it's realistic? Again, because you said you were alert yeah. to that risk. Um, of where, if you like, more cyclical exposures could be um, uh, embraced more. And part and parcel of that might be extra confidence about fiscal stimulus. Where do you think there is and isn't potential for it to take place? Well, clearly here in the UK, there's a very clear conservative agenda to spend a load of money. Yeah. Um, so I think here in the UK, I think there's a very high likelihood of fiscal stimulus now. I think, again, in the US, as we head into an election year, I think Trump will be doing everything he can uh, to try and boost his chances of winning the election. And there's, you know, well-documented tendency for presidential election years to see a better tone to growth because of that effect. There's obviously talk of Germany moving to a looser fiscal stance. I think that will be a lot harder. I think there it's market speculation. I think that actually the market maybe has got a bit ahead of itself. And I think one of the challenges maybe in Germany is that the emphasis also is on the environment, which is great, 
but it's not necessarily about maximising GDP growth. Right, so it's fiscal stimulus with particular purpose. And possibly fiscal stimulus with a, a lower multiply effect, i.e. Yeah, less yeah. positive boost to the, the rest of the economy. Um, so so that's why... But I think in, in the Anglo-Saxon world, I think there is the potential for fiscal stimulus. Now, the US, obviously, Trump has already done a lot. But, you know, at the margin, could there be attempts as we head into the election? Yes. And certainly knowing Trump possibly, you know, talk. Yes, talk, exactly. And where the market is priced, with the market so defensive already. That's the fidget. The talk. The yeah. talk can get the market moving. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, and so in practice, um, as you think about asset classes in terms of harnessing the potential risk of that, let's call it upside, what are you, what are you talked about fading rallies, but how are you, um, in terms of aggregating risk exposures, how are you uh, catering for that potential it's the scenario? The cyclical risk. Yeah, the cyclical risk. The scenario. upside cyclical yeah. risk. Well, predominantly we have exposure through currencies. So, for example, we have exposure to high carry currencies, which typically means emerging market risk via currencies. So that's an area that we've been positioned in all year and actually continues to perform and has the potential to perform even further if you see an improvement in the cycle. So that's an area, and we've added at the margin to some of our cyclical currency exposures. Um, I think that um, in selling European high-yield debt, you know, a marginal shift has been back into equity and fairly broad-based equity. Um, ultimately, not increasing the overall risk of our portfolio, but, but you know, acknowledging that European high-yield debt in particular was priced for perfection. Right. And it was probably time to maybe rotate out. Um, and I guess the final thing is that we've had a very strong preference for the US for many, many years, the US equity market. We've always said it was reassuringly expensive. I mean, now at the margin, we're shifting to a more balanced exposure across regions. It's, it's a strategy that's worked very well in a world that was, was anemic with only the US really growing. But again, the US has outperformed a lot over recent years. And so even just moving back to a sort of more benchmark position, which ultimately still has a lot of US risk in it, is appropriate at this point in time. So against that backdrop, one of the things that I know um, Keith's been quite vocal about has been the trajectory of earnings uh, as we look into next year and calling for, if not an economic recession, a high risk um, of an earnings uh, recession, which of course, again, coming back to the apple cart, uh, is potentially very destabilizing. What's what's your view on that? Yes, we are worried about that as a risk in 2020. Um, that, in fact, I discussed it quite a bit with Keith. We can sit here saying that technically the global economy is not in recession because global growth is over 2%. But actually, that's a remarkably low level of growth for the global economy and actually might result in an earnings recession, which actually is worse for the market. In and some to sense. use the analogy, that's at a pace where the bicycle, if the economy is the bicycle, it's going so slowly yeah. it could fall over, as it were, from an earnings standpoint. Yeah, and particularly for the US, it's the first time in years... Mm that we have that as a risk for the US. So for many years, the reason why we favoured the US was we felt that the earnings were there to justify its outperformance, that it provided that stability of earnings. But again, we need to acknowledge that things have come a long way. There's evidence now, for example, the US is having exhibiting some late cycle characteristics. So we have a very tight labour market. Um, at the margin, employment costs are going up. There's evidence of some 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 pressure on profit margins as we move into 2020, against the backdrop of, of ultimately weak weak growth. So, so therefore, moving a little bit out of the US, um, very selectively into Europe to take advantage. And again, you talked about the switch out of European high yield um, 
and again to cater given the valuations that exist now in Europe for that potential kind of cyclical upside or you know, my word fidget. Um, yeah, Europe, Japan and emerging markets were spreading it out. Right, but yes, at the margin um, being less. Yeah, we've had such a strong bias to the US and I think it's time to maybe reduce it a little bit. And um, and does that therefore have a dollar view inherent in it as well? We are basically still long dollars. I mean, for us, the long dollars have been, again, a position we've had all year because, first of all, it's positive carry. So it's always nice to have a hedge that's paying you. Uh, and also it's a, it's a hedge against the potential for the Fed to disappoint. You know, quite a bit is priced in for the Fed in terms of rate cuts. And obviously it's been the juice that's kind of kept the market going this year. So, you know, having that long dollar position in case they disappoint is quite important. We were long dollar versus euro. Again, the euro has weakened substantially now. We've rotated it into other shorts like Canada, Singapore dollar. We did that over the summer. We've gradually been diversifying our dollar position. So again, Europe is the area where we've seen the most extreme pricing, being yields, being the move in the currency, being European high yield debt performing. And actually the sort of divergence between value versus growth is most extreme in Europe. Um, and so that's been reflected in the areas where we've been taking profits. Government, German government yields, European high yield debt, and short euro. Right. So it's just in that sense, it's a rebalancing based yeah. on the extremities that we've seen in the asset classes you describe. And against that backdrop, just it, it is Fed week, I think, isn't it? And so core expectation that we get a 25 basis point cut this week. Yes, that's what we're expecting. But the key will be the language. The, the sort of forward guidance on what they're likely to do. And I think they've messed it up a bit this year, sometimes on the communication. Um, and that's really the the potential challenge as we go into into the into the meeting. Well, uh, President Trump was exerting pressure last week, wasn't he? Yes. With, a, with a tweet in response to what Draghi was saying and saying, you know, over to you, Fed. Um, so we'll see what they come up with. Um, so maybe um, in, the, in the last minutes that we have, um, it strikes me, given what you're, you're describing, um, that it, it is a very fine balance that we're treading. So what's your core message to clients right now in terms of, in practice, what they should expect sort of return-wise looking out, I'd say, over the next 12, 18 months? How are you kind of trying to kind of manage their expectations given the mandates that you have? Well, we think, I mean... So essentially, the opportunities are on the cyclical side, if you look at where the valuations are supportive. Um, but we're lacking the cyclical catalysts. As I said, think, you know, there is the opportunity maybe for, for things to continue to grind higher going into the fourth quarter. So I think ultimately this year is proving to be a good year for markets. I think yeah. as we move into 2020, we're probably bringing expectations down. The problem with quantitative easing is it borrows returns from the future, yeah. which has certainly happened in the credit markets now. Uh, and as I said, there's this earnings risk in the US, which we haven't had on our horizon for a long time. So for now, still invested, still focusing on generating return. But with these hedges, duration and the dollar in the portfolio, I think as we move into 2020, we are concerned about the earnings risk. So we really need to see an improvement in global growth. Otherwise, the path of least resistance might be for a challenging year in 2020. And so, again, because I know this is how the team thinks in terms of of scenarios, um, it, let's 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 end in the more optimistic vein in terms of the upside scenario, the upside risk scenario, which would cause you maybe to have more confidence in terms of of, of some of that cyclical risk. 
what's the what's the one scenario that you're kind of having at the back of your mind thinking about well i need to be alert to that just in case you've got the course which is more a stagnation type scenario at the moment but what's the what's the one that you're keeping a closest eye on which would change that core set of beliefs i think i mean trade is a wild card yeah um which could change at any moment in some sense, um, but probably sign of a move on fiscal policy. I think it's hard for monetary policy, to the extent that monetary policy gets even looser, you have to assume by then we're in recession. An environment where central banks have to cut by even more than what's priced into markets, I don't think is a good environment. I think we'll get into an environment then where bad news is bad news. Exactly. And Draghi has been saying very clearly in his sign-off, effectively, over to you guys. Yeah, they've reached the limits. Yeah. So really, it's movement on the, the, you know, new ideas that can come through on the fiscal side. So to pick up on what you were saying earlier, potentially Germany surprising us. Yes. Even though that's hard. To I envisage. see that as a risk, but yeah. yes. Yeah. So I think that's just something for, for, for again, for um, our listeners to think about when calibrating clients' expectations of we have this um, slightly downbeat uh, view of the world right now, but these are the things that we're watching, which could potentially change our level of optimism about what one might expect from a growth standpoint, therefore an earnings standpoint. And that coupled with, if you like, an easing of the trade war kind of bombast, even though the tension between the US and China is likely to persist. For me, it's quite systemic, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So for me, that would be noise, but it's noise that can move the market. Yes, because it could be sustained noise in the run-up to a re-election campaign. yeah. Good. But I think on that note, um, let me let me wrap up, Johanna. Thank you very much indeed. And just quickly in terms of summary, I think um, what we've been hearing is, uh, first of all, uh, that everything is quite finely balanced. We've had a good year of returns uh, across asset classes when measured on a year-to-date basis. Um, but questions are now being posed as we look into 2020 in terms of Yes, economic growth, but perhaps more fundamentally, the momentum, especially in US earnings, and where forecasts now are looking more negative. And that's causing uh, Johanna and the team to rebalance exposures uh, away slightly from the US, more in favor of Europe. But within Europe, there's a nuance, which is because of the run, for example, in European high yield, a rebalancing towards uh, equity somewhat, uh, as well as uh, exposures in Japan and emerging markets to counter that more nuanced view. And finally, what would cause greater optimism than we're currently expressing? Well, that would be uh, sustained easing of rhetoric on trade tension, which is acting as an impediment at the moment on the investment cycle and activity. And then secondly, perhaps an upside surprise on the degree of fiscal stimulus, particularly uh, out of countries like Germany. But to repeat, that's not our core scenario at this point. And with that, Johanna, thank you again very much for joining us and forward to the next time. Thank you.